Hi everyone, uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Can you hear me? Okay, through the mic. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, maybe as a little kind of preparatory uh, note, uh, some of the material we'll be talking about today um, draws upon the sort of arcane vocabularies of uh, gaming culture, of geekdom, alongside, um, I guess, kind of Anthropocene studies. Uh, so if there are any terms that we use throughout the talk that require a little sort of explanation or, or definition, uh, please do just call out and we can sort of define them as we go and sort of keep the discussion going and, and open. Um, the way that I wanted to structure the talk today uh, was to start by exploring something of the world that David and Merlin and other collaborators have created for the exhibition that's on show. Um, it's a world that's uh, quite oceanic in its um, extent. Um, it's kind of excessively cohesive and uh, is an immersive experience to kind of encounter whether or not you're watching the film or reading the um, role-playing handbook that's been produced alongside it. Um, I also just wanted to ask at the outset if anyone in the audience has experience of playing role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. Okay, so that's <laughs> <laughs> Um, so basically for anyone who's not familiar with that uh, culture and that kind of uh, game system, it's essentially a form of uh, collective and collaborative storytelling where one nominated player will uh, relay a story and a series of other players will engage in that story and usually work together to try and um, unearth the truth or attain some kind of success within the game world. And those games can be uh, fantastical, they can be incredibly mundane, uh, they can be um, anything. It's, it's purely uh, sort of relayed collectively and in the imagination of the players. Um, so, yeah, I thought we'd start by just asking David to read the sort of lyrical vignette that introduces this world and then go into uh, a kind of an exploration <coughs> tour of this world and talk about some of the kind of underlying principles. And then once we've explored that world for a while, we're going to kind of pull back into the present planetary crisis and we're going to talk about the real world and the things that have informed the exhibition and the role playing game. Eons ago, the old world faded. Some tell of a sea of fire, some of air that spoiled and made throats roar, some of a sickness that ravaged the land. But all refer to it as the cataclysm. Those that were left retreated to our havens, deep silos, deep underground. Hundreds were built across the more habitable areas of the old world. Some connected to form mega havens, but some were simply left alone, forgotten, waiting for the moment to return to surface. Each of these havens developed independently to form communities, ecosystems, and they changed. Homo sapiens were no more. One of the things that I found really wonderful uh, reading through the role-playing book that David Romain and the, the other players have produced together is that fragments of the text uh, repurposed as a script to the film to some sort of focal point. Um, so there's this kind of cross-correspondence between the two. And there are certain terms that keep coming to the fore throughout. So there's the term cataclysm, essence, 
um, intersection. And I wondered if I could ask both of you to kind of break down those terms and their definitions within this specific context and then just sort of unpack a little bit of the meaning behind them. Because they're very resonant terms and I think some of them have um, um, a kind of analogous and sort of political uh, kind of potency that's really important to be aware of before we move further. Yeah, so I guess it started with the cataclysm because the cataclysm was is this idea of um, a kind of a, I guess the state that we're working through right now, which is um, both ecological collapse but also societal problems um, and redefinitions. And um, the term actually was from um, a sci-fi book about the moon crashing into the into the uh, into the earth. <laughs> and um, it's called the, uh, what was it, the Forsyth Manuscript, I think it's called. Anyway, um, And um, it's a very strange book, but it just seemed like a, an interesting term for, for kind of an undefined event. Because it is sort of, for me, it was, it, I was both thinking ecologically, but, you know, there are many other cataclysms that could, could happen. We could have nuclear war, we could have just um, massive social unrest, etc. And... Um, but essentially something really kind of almost earth-ending happens around the end of the 21st century. And then, yeah, what, what happens after that? Because, you know, um, one thing that seems evident is that life persists in some way. And, um, yeah, how do we survive that? And so, slightly influenced by various um, sci-fi books that I've been reading, especially... Um, Philip K. Dick stuff. Um, there's, uh, I thought about these, these kind of underground havens. Sort of also thinking of, I suppose, about things like 2000 AD, like um, the um, Judge Dredd type megalopolis, <laughs> and kind of but sit, then situating them underground in that sort of fantastical way. Um, and yeah, it's a space they don't quite make sense in some ways. Like they're, they're, they're vast. They're kind of almost like landscapes underground. Um, with with some sort of light source that's not really utterly defined in, in, in the thing. But then all those kind of problems are waved away with the, with the idea of essence, which is sort of at the, the heart of all kind of the equivalent of magic in this world, in this system. So um, it's this idea that as, um, as humanity destroyed the world, the world sort of responded in some sort of way. It's almost a bit like, like Lovelock's sort of Gaia theory. There's this sort of that the Earth responds to to us as much as we respond to it, and that it, it kind of it, it was almost like a, a distress call antidote that was sent out into the world, and it changed both um, nature, but it also changed humanity. So. Um, it sped up evolution. So therefore, within eight thousand years, you could actually have kind of uh, practical evolution of species, whereas you know normally take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years for any sort of meaningful um, evolutionary difference. Um, and then, um, and it also kind of allowed for the manipulation of elements. So um, you could take kind of just a drop of water and turn it into a flood or something like that. So that's sort of it's that sort of sort of idea that you can actually kind of see into the, the essence of things, <laughs> let's say. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. regarding the, the cataclysm aspect, I think it's... Because obviously, as you say, it could be many things that could have caused the cataclysm. It's not actually defined in the book, is it? And I think that's a very uh, 
you know, there's multiple crises we're currently going through, and the idea that kind of just one thing is going to be the end of the world, I think, is you know a bit a bit simplified, and I think focusing too much on the past would have been um, not the right approach to this. Obviously, it's kind of it's not really. I would say I think that's what the the New Vegas writer described out their world. It's not post-apocalyptic. It's post-post-apocalyptic. That is, it's looking at how society evolves, you know, so far in the future they've forgotten about the past rather than seeing how, you know, we're surviving through this cataclysm. And one of the things I was kind of, you know, I think when I was writing about the Uruk, I was kind of describing how they'd, like, perceive these kind of, you know, like the, the ruins that they find are kind of the, the fortresses and bones of giants and, you know, these people are kind of wiped themselves out in a great war and that kind of thing, like, you know, the, the perspective of the past in this society, you know, they're not going to say, oh, it was nuclear bombs or something like that, you know. But obviously, if that even was what we're saying here, I mm. mean, that's still, that's, still, that's still a threat, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of forgotten about now, but there's obviously the ecological crisis and everything, so... Yeah, exactly. It, it entered the, the kind of the realm of myth in a way. Um, the you know what had actually happened, and, and you know it's very much about um, what do we do now from this point um, in the intersection, which is this idea of kind of like you have all these havens underground. I mean, they talk about we talk about in the book. Um, I think tens of thousands or something across across the world. Um, was it hundreds of thousands? I can't remember what the final, <laughs> final um, decision was. But they um, then you have a surface world, and that becomes this kind of yeah. It, it was sort of a, a play on the idea of intersectionality that that you, um, there's sort of a place where people can meet and kind of find um, either a commonality or, or, or whatever in, in on this this surface space before maybe going back to their havens or maybe kind of abandoning it altogether. So that, that was sort of the start of that. We kind of gave a nice kind of gameplay hook, didn't it, as well, that your characters are kind of coming out onto mm. this kind of, well, what seems like an uninspired paradise. You know, obviously it's, it's not in the, the history. It's, it's kind of a rewilded, essence-fueled uh, biosphere, yeah. isn't it? But it's that kind of moment of exploration that kind of gives you the hook to get into the adventure, isn't it, in a way? As well. There's a, a really nice echo as well of uh, Burroughs into Zone, I think, <laughs> and um, all the idea of um, the Shigasti Zone from Roadside Picnic. Um, that this is a space of um, difference and differentiation and dialogue. And one of the things that I thought was quite nice um, structurally in terms of how you kind of consider this new world, uh, role playing games are often exercises in um, distancing yourself from yourself. They kind of force you into different forms of reconsideration of your. Um, uh, your kind of character or your kind of moral compass, your moral obligations. Um, but this idea of essence being this kind of ethereal, uh, well, kind of a matter, an all pervasive matter that places metamorphosis or mutation at the heart of the experience of being in this world, I think brings metamorphosis more centrally into the gameplay mm -hmm. than any other gaming system I've, I've encountered, really. And it kind of puts this um, immediate emphasis on a certain kind of innate alienation from the self that is, is endlessly kind of developing. And there's a table that you included in the book which shows a series of developments that characters can undertake as they sort of evolve through different um, character types or classes. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that kind of gameplay mechanic and, 
It's um, yeah, it was um, a structure initially inspired by my love of um, certain Final Fantasy games, which um, like Final Fantasy Tactics, and um, which I've played quite a lot, where um, as a play you take on various jobs system jobs and you kind of get extra abilities from those jobs but I also want it to be like a system where it's almost getting to the essence of yourself so it kind of the essence metaphor continues that it's 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 sort of a journey of self-discovery but also a journey of self-transformation until I mean, quite, quite a few of the final forms are barely human at all. They're almost like ghosts going through the world, but able to affect this incredible change. So you're kind of let, letting go of this, um, I don't know, um, attachment to what it is that you thought it was to be this type of post-human and kind of getting closer to a sort of, um, I don't know, more of a, let's say, a cosmic self. <laughs> so, so it's sort of a, yeah, existential journey, I guess, for each of the players, you know, and, and, it's, it's, and, and what I love about role-playing games is that it's, it's such a collaborative, collective thing. So, you're, you know, it's not only you that's changing, it's everyone around you, and they're all kind of shifting at various rates depending on, kind of, you know, how, how well they're fulfilling their, their particular role, etc., um, and all in different ways, so they're all gradually coming kind of further from their original form until they're kind of they're, they're this something else. It's kind of you know this, this, this different species. Sure, it is on page thirty-seven. And so I guess you've already loosely alluded to it, but um, there are a series of havens that exist in these subterranean communities, mm. and each community is affected in a different way by the kind of circumstantial ecological factors at play in those locales. Mm. And as a result of this, you have defined and described a series of emergent societies. And Merlin, you actually um, conceived and wrote through the kind of history of one of those societies called the Dara. I wonder if you could just introduce the Dara and talk to us a little about um, where they come from, what their approach to finding some form of life in this new context is. And the thing that was really interesting to hear about was the centrality of class struggle within the emerging kind of social form. Yeah, so the Dara, I think, you know, I think they were kind of, we had a bit of a brief, there was a kind of a bit of a brief when I joined that was kind of that they were. I think they live underground, they eat mushrooms and they they kind of have have a kind of hereditary kind of system or you know, that so I was kind of working trying to spin that out into something a lot more kind of fleshed out, you know, put some flesh on the bones as it were. And uh yeah, I think the idea of uh you know, so I was thinking about kind of these luminous mushrooms that they eat and kind of thinking how trying to think about their cosmology more as well, like I think that's, you know, a lot of the kind of D and D type societies and so on. They, that's kind of something that kind of gets a bit ignored. You know, it's kind of, you get this. It's very much kind of this capitalist medieval society, isn't it? Like, it's not really a society that would kind of 
working in a library is not very anthropologically informed. That's a doll. Oh yeah, that's a doll there. <laughs> so yeah, so it's a, a society where they've kind of started eating these luminous mushrooms to survive, basically, and that kind of scarcity has created this very kind of ossified class structure, I think is the word we used. Mm. Matriarchal as well. Yeah. Mm. Yes, this kind of ossified matriarchy. So I was kind of looking at kind of defining the classes more. So you've got this kind of priest class of luminous. So this idea of obviously underground, the light is going to be something that's going to stand out to you, especially if you're collecting luminous mushrooms. And obviously it's a very common idea, you know, even nowadays. In in human religion, we're familiar with the kind of the connection between the luminous and the numinous, as you might say. So I made that a big theme. I actually called the the priest class the luminous, and then you've got the kind of um, you know the warrior class under that, and the the um, you know the kind of merchant class, the industrious, I call them. Then the numerous are these slaves, which have you know a very bad lives, so they're basically forced together. So I kind of went. Yeah, they're thinking more about how kind of the history would develop. So I was thinking about, um, you know, what you get underground. I think I was reading about kind of guano in underground caves and how that was used as a source of gunpowder. Okay. So that kind of naturally made me think, oh, gunpowder, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, I was thinking about, so you've got the, the guano provides the gunpowder and then um, I was thinking you need a source of sulphur. So um, I was thinking there's, because then I found out sulphur is a fungicide. So I was thinking maybe there's these plants underground that produce sulphur so that they don't get eaten by the mushrooms, you know. And that. So I think very much about how this would work in ecological terms. So I've got this gunpowder and then, you know, what effect does this have on their society? So I'm thinking that's, you know, you've got this, uh, this culture that develops around the gunpowder, the light, again, the flash of gunpowder is there, religious experience, you know, and then how the, the blasting capacity of this gunpowder to carve out these tunnels is creating space to expand where it wasn't before in this very, you know, constricted society and how that leads to, to social revolution, you know. Okay, um, before we move on to the very sort of real world ecology that the game is inspired by, the, the nature reserve can be with, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk a little about the image that's on the screen behind us coincidentally, which shows this uh, cast of characters um, that you're all able to um, ad- adopt and inhabit and, and play. And I wondered um, what your thoughts were just generally on the way that role-playing games often um, recompound and concretize real-world um, prejudice and uh, unbalanced forms of representation. Um, so, for example, in, in this emergent world, there's um, a completely different take on uh, whiteness, which has been kind of pushed into an unusual kind of I don't even know if it is defined, I don't know why this does, it, does occur, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the sort of um, racial composition of this new world and how that might reflect um, things that are lacking in current role-playing game systems. Yeah, it's, I mean, that in a way was, was one of the hearts of the endeavour to start making this game, because I, try, trying I was trying to think of how we could reconfigure the fantasy space in, in a way that wasn't strictly Northern European, kind of um, obsessed with Arthurian myth and etc. And make it more open and um, maybe closer to, to some of um, Ursula Le Guin's sort of, you know, Wizard of Earthsea type imaginings. Um, 
and so really yeah i mean all the different um societies are i guess based on on different peoples of color so you have you have the notions especially who um they are breathe underwater they uh, the um haven was um, subsumed in water quite early in, in its development, and they kind of, but uh, it was a, a relatively gradual process, and so they were able to evolve to to breathe underwater. But then there's also this kind of this reference to the passage over the seas, and this kind of the idea that the people lost beneath the waves, and it kind of coming back. And I don't know, there's a whole history of, of yeah of, of ship travel and and Essex being brought up in that somehow so so that that's the notions and then the, the, the Dara in some ways were um, was thinking about almost oil states and kind of flipping the kind of patriarchal systems that you find sometimes there and then that that sort of so yeah it was it was and then the the one white society is, is the Uruk who are albino because they're, they're kind of being deprived from uh, sunlight for, for so long and the economy is just that. So it's sort of trying to kind of get rid of the default, <laughs> let's say, and make make everyone reconsider, like, there's there's no sort of, you know, heroic knight character in, in this game. Um, so you have to instantly get into the... A different sort of mode of thinking about what your fantasy space will be, and I mean, surprisingly, well, I mean, surprising to me, but like, maybe it's not. A lot of people are drawn to the Sophia, who are um, a, a society where um, everyone is effectively, yeah, they, they're able to change gender every month. So, and but I think what draws them is, is off. They're kind of almost like. Um, they're the closest to sort of the Ursula Quinn um, always coming home kind of um, idea of sort of a repurposed, um, yeah, Native American kind of culture, I guess. Um, agrarian, vaguely, I mean, yeah, everything is shared. Um, and it's a very kind of uh, yeah tactile society. Which um, actually one of the other participants, um, Gary, was was very keen on, and he he wrote quite a lot of the, the kind of the background on it. But um, he was also one of the most um, kind of committed role players in the group. Let's say so when we were doing doing our, our our play sessions, he would be the one that was kind of you know absolutely in character when he was playing. So doing the voice and kind of doing. Um, whereas some of some of the other other kind of players have kind of slightly more kind of removed sort of like you know not not doing the voices that you know my my person does this sort of way of role playing so yeah it's it's it was but yeah he got very involved in it and kind of yeah wrote a, a whole treatise on on how how the society would function and and it also played up I I think yeah none of the societies are a utopia let's say. They, they all have, um, I mean, like Ursula Gwynn in, in, in The Dispossessed, you know, there's, there's this, this space which is kind of a, almost like a, a, a perfectly anarcho-communist sort of state, uh, planet, as opposed to a sort of patriarchal ca- capitalist planet which is sort of very nearby. Um, 
and the kind of a, there, there's at the heart of it there's this sort of sadness that that almost um, close personal connection. So being in a couple is almost frowned upon, and that's sort of sort of the state of Sophia as well. So sort of so although it seems very like it's, it's wonderful that everything is is um, collective. It, it also has this drawback. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of not... It, I think it gives it some nuance, let's say. I think isn't the, the subtitle of the Dispossessed in Perfect Utopia? Or oh, Flawed right. Utopia? I, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think yeah. that... Well, I have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. Because that's the idea, it's kind of... I mean, it seems like a utopia to us, but it has its, its issues, <laughs> effectively. But yeah, I think as you, you said about representation, that's something that was certainly very, very bad in the... In the early Dungeons and Dragons, like you know, you'd have like it was literally the the players all described as he, and I think the only female characters would be some like naked siren or something, which would be trying to kill you. <laughs> you know, it was very um, very bad in that regard. And obviously, it's if you read the latest editions, it's uh, improved a lot more. But you still have this, you know, every character is male or female, and you have these races where it's like some of them are kind of. And they've kind of moved away a bit. There's still this idea of kind of the orcs being like inherently evil or savage and unintelligent. And uh, yeah, the the idea of the you know natural alignment. Yeah, so, exactly, so something being yeah. like a drow is always evil. The drow is the evil elf. Yeah, and they just so happen to be dark skinned. Yeah, so yeah. and and just just like you know the orc is often seen as the brutish sort of almost id of humanity, and it's. You know, so obviously a kind of colonial fantasy about about blackness, and you know, as seen in in Lord of the Rings. Well, right? interesting enough, in the in the Lord of the Rings, uh, I mean, a lot of people say, I mean, it's already obviously you've got this kind of, as you say, Arthurian, like this feudal, valorized Western European society that's invaded by these inherent evil Oriental hordes, which looks very dodgy on the face of it, and people are like, oh no, the orcs are. You know, they're so and so, they're not meant to be in relation to real life society. But then there was the very first proposal for a Lord of the Rings film in, I think, 57 or around then when Tolkien was still alive anyway. He read the script. And in the script, all they wanted to do was have the orcs as these beaked and feathered creatures. I suppose a bit like the, the Skeksis or Skeksis, is it the Dark Crystal? Something along those lines is what they were proposing for the orcs. And then Tolkien replied saying, no, the orcs should be these, I think, like the, the, the scripture used was the degraded representatives of the, the least lovely Mongol types. Mm. So that's, you know, yeah. very much gave the game away with that description. Yeah. But, you know, it's this idea of, you know, these fantasy races are very much rooted in, you know, they're at the, this colour, this idea of, of real life racism, you know, which very much pervades it. But, uh, yeah, it's very much the, the orcs have, you know, evolved in this kind of idea of the the underman, you know, from this kind of fascist writings, which, you know, obviously we um, associate very strongly with with Germany, but a lot of that was, you know, these ideas really came out of the 20s and 30s in uh, um, in America, like uh, Madison Grant, Love for Upstrong, and actually he wrote a book called The Menace of the Underman, which, you know, could have been about hawks, effectively, if you, you take that idea, but, you know, these these people writing at the kind of high of the pole tradition as well, like, you know, Robert E. Howard, Lovecraft, that's all very much part of this kind of eugenical tradition, which then obviously influenced D&D as well as Tolkien, so it has this very, very bad uh, connotation. But that's something we were trying to do with the world after, obviously, was 
I know there's, you know, there's that this eugenical idea or the traditional idea. You've got this kind of scarlet mature that, you know, humans at the top. Then you've got kind of these under men, the liminal beings, like for example, the you know prehistoric people. Another example from my own background. Then you've got kind of apes. It just goes down and down. Obviously, women are lower in, in it as well. But kind of it's very entwined with animality. This um, this human politics, but obviously these races are entwined with animality, but in a way that's very more. You know, that's not, doesn't have the hierarchical aspect, but more kind of embodied in the landscape, like kind of the, the egg laying and how that would affect their society and the mushrooms of the Iraq. This kind of multifarious um, embodiment that's going post-human, you know. Yeah, I think one of the things that's strange about Tolkien, um, despite the fact that he's known for a, a certain kind of fantastical elaboration of, of bucolic Englishness, um, his roots are in colonial South Africa, and so there's very much a kind of a, an early apartheid agenda at play in terms of the way that those sort of mm. fantastical races were um, derived from a, a real-world kind of prejudice. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about Lovecraft, and especially Lovecraft in the present. Lovecraft's a, a, a deep, deeply racist author who needs to be read as a racist and not, not defended, I think. Um, we can still sort of celebrate certain um, kind of formal and, and sort of thematic innovations, but it's, it's important to um, kind of maintain the, the hatred that underscores uh, a lot of his, his writing. Um, but thinking about this project in relation to a wider sort of decolonial project that's taking place in fan culture, um, you're both very much immersed in kind of fan cultures um, whether it's through kind of video games, I know David, you use video games extensively in the production of your own work. Mm. But I just wondered if you could talk a little about your identity as, a, as, as fans and how um, maybe your interest in science fiction and fan culture tipped from being something indulgent into something that had a political import. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I always saw. Um, the fan cultures that I got involved in as in a way, you know, you, you start having conversations with people that you wouldn't normally talk to, basically it's, you know, you go to the arcade you start playing Street Fighter I mean, yeah, probably my first real fandom was fighting games so Street Fighter, King of Fighters um, I only really got them into them properly when I started working in a computer game shop so, um, and um, you know, I thought I was quite good at Street Fighter and you know first day I realised oh no I'm really not any good at Street Fighter because <laughs> like every you know you, you kind of um, pick your favourite character you load up the screen and like and the person's killed you within two seconds it's like what even just happened you know and but it's through that that and it becomes this kind of yeah this kind of odyssey of trying to just get better and it's you know it's very much that Ryu like search for almost like um, self improvement um, but while you're doing that you're doing it alongside kind of um, a whole um, community of other people doing the same thing so they're playing against you they kind of you know you start having having laughs you start making friendships um, and you kind of realize that and this 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 um, friend group is very different from sort of you know a group uh, uh, the group that you would have I don't know, from school or from, from kind of a preset thing, because you all, all share this one love and it's, it's, you know, there it is. And then that, 
you know, I mean, that fighting game culture doesn't exist in the same way anymore, I'd say, just because you know, arcades don't exist anymore. Um, I mean, it is it's still a thing. It's still like, I mean, in, in some ways it's become far more professionalised. There are people that travel the world like playing playing fighting games. But, um, but yeah, that kind of grassroots thing um, is... Has, has sort of sort of faded, but I saw inside that, um, and then within spaces like say the fandom around Critical Role, which is this um, live play D and D. It was originally on Twitch, or well, it's still on Twitch TV. It's like a so it's it's live broadcast from America. I've never watched it live because it's like at three in the morning, hard time. But um, um, yeah, and then it's kind of repeated. And you watch as a bunch of, as they call themselves, nerdy-ass voice actors play Dungeons and & Dragons. And um, each episode is like three or four hours long. <laughs> and it's, it's just them improvising a story around what their dungeon master, Matt Mercer, who's kind of voice actor for various different things, he did the voice for... Um, of Fei Long in Street Fighter Four, <laughs> but also you know, lots of lots of sort of very it's, it's very super geeky. But the fan culture around it is just enormous, and it's become like you know it, it's you can see that it's a space in which people feel able to express themselves. They find this new love of a thing, which is Dungeons and Dragons, and then they they find almost a, a shared commonality through this space. Um, and it's also a shared commonality of a space where you feel able to kind of almost break out of a kind of socially imposed norm, let's say, and kind of let your geekdom run free or, you know, other things like, you know, so it's, it's very much linked with um, openness about uh, sexuality, gender ideas and, and, and uh, racial identity, etc. So, you know, that's, that's all kind of in, inherent in it. I mean, you know, the fandom is a fandom, so it goes completely pear-shaped pear at certain points. I mean, recently um, they've created a, um, a animated series based on their, their early adventures, so they're, they're now on season two with a whole different set of characters, but they're making an animated series of basically good parts of season one. And um, it's been signed up to Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime are producing it. And it was instantly like half, I don't know, a, a certain section of the, the fan base were, were utterly disappointed by this because it's like selling out to the worst of the worst. And, you know, I, I, I think... They have they have a good point, but it's just it's interesting that people kind of attach so much of their identity to this external thing. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, but yeah, essentially, I see fandoms as sort of potentially a space of um, like I don't know emancipation from a kind of conventional sense of self, but they also have this kind of other head of kind of possibly creating another kind of conformity. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting that there's now a lot of kind of fandoms that are kind of being built around kind of more around incl- uh, like inclusivity than necessarily the content. I mean, I mentioned Jim Sterling to you, didn't I, uh, earlier? And that's kind of, like, there's kind of like a, like Facebook groups 
around like games kind of based around Jim Sterling. Though. A lot of people don't even watch like Jim Sterling stuff, you know, it's just kind of people meet, people are into lots of different things and they kind of, it becomes this inclusive space where obviously like a lot of fandoms around the things they like are not at all inclusive. Like that is one of the, one of the, the big issues, like, you know, this game gate thing and that's really never gone away. Like mm. this kind of very, I think, um, cyber, I don't know if you know the title, Cyberpunk something or the 20, you know that game? Oh yeah, yeah. Cyberpunk 2047. That's it, yeah. Um, when basically they announced that they were, you know, just, they didn't really announce it, so it's just what, you know, they just put up upcoming things in the game as it's about to be released and they just said, oh, you can make like trans characters in the game or something to that effect in their character creation. And then all these people are like, oh, the game's become political now. And it's like, you know, just having, and it's very much the idea of like, oh, the, like women are ruining video games. These are people, things people seriously believe, like they don't see their own politics. They think, oh, Call of Duty, that's not a political game. <laughs> even though it's like a, this very colonialist military thing. In fact, even because they license the, the gun, the guns they use, they license them for the arms manufacturers. So literally it's funding arms manufacturers buying the games, but somehow it's not political. But having a woman in the game, a trans person, gay people in the game, that's political. And political is supposedly bad, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. That's the ideology of these people. It's, it's kind of interesting because I think the kind of counterpoint to that taking on, on fandom, mm. being a sort of emancipatory mm. uh, community, is the uh, sort of innate toxicity to a lot of fandom communities. I guess that's what I was trying um, to allude to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and what you were just saying then, then about Gamergate, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with Gamergate as a kind of cultural, political moment but it was basically a controversy in the United States that animated a certain portion of the electorate in the run-up to Trump's um, presidential candidacy campaign. Um, it was targeted at uh, female journalists who had a kind of feminist agenda in terms of um, reinvigorating discussion around representation of uh, women in video games. And it basically galvanized a whole subsection of the fan community um, into a heightened form of uh, kind of poisonous online activism against um, a anyone who was markedly different from themselves, and primarily uh, young male gamers, essentially. Um, but it's interesting because it kind of dovetailed with lots of other um, mobilizations in fan communities. I, I would sort of suggest people look at a case called Race Fail Online that the artist Harvey Pandal put me onto that he's exploring a lot of recent works, um, which were basically attempts made by um, uh, writers of colour in the United States to try and get a predominantly white um, science fiction community to take note of um, themes that they thought were being kind of misrepresented in science fiction and the kind of um, acerbic responses to that became widely documented um, and then it's created a, a sort of an ongoing corrective discussion which has been really, really good to see. Um, but yeah, I'd just like to kind of bring it back to uh, the sort of real world topography of Canby Wick, which is the nature reserve that this game is located in. And even though we're imagining the world thousands of years in the future and it's radically altered, has different flora and fauna and different uh, roaming tribal communities on the surface. 
Um, I'd just like to hear a little bit about the maybe the kind of field trips you took into Canby Wick Nature Reserve and, and how some of those um, kind of organisms informed the weird and kind of strange elaborations that we might encounter in the game. Yeah, it was, I mean, really it was um, a space that I discovered through, um, through the New Geographies project as a whole. It was because um, the New Geographies commission was set out through um, the public in, in the east of England putting forward sites that they, would find, they thought were interesting but undervalued by their community. Um, and there were, yeah, I think around 300 put, put up for artists to consider to make responses to. And, you know, went through, through the list and um, lots of them had potential. There was a really interesting um, abandoned airfield which had lots, which is now used as a kind of car park for cars that have been traded in. And so there's lots of cars full of, full of moss and stuff. They've been there for 20 years or something. And... Um, as a um, like a Roman ruin in the middle of an industrial estate, which seemed quite interesting, I thought. Um, but then um, came across the story of Canby Wick and how it was scheduled to be a oil reserve in the early seventies, um, and then the oil crash happened, and it was effectively left to nature. It was going to be. Um, there were several attempts to resuscitate, resuscitate it as a site for industry. But um, every time the, the, the money fell through, um, and um, so, you know, we, we find it today with uh, wild orchids, and we find it with, with um, the shrill carder bee, which is like a, a particular bee that's, that's, that's unique to this area, not just the wick itself, but kind of, you know, the, the, the particular area. Um, and, um, yeah, just... A whole panoply of, 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 of mostly very small <laughs> things, so you have to really, really look for them. But um, yeah, mostly arachnids and and um, yeah, kind of other other insects in the site. But um, it's a strange site because you, you, when you walk into it, it's almost like um, yeah, there's, there's kind of, it's kind of it's scrub. It's kind of little groups of trees and these these huge circles of tarmac which were going to be the bases for the... Well, they were bases for these huge tanks, which were then removed, and the, the bases are still there. And then some kind of concrete fragments of things, like, like bits of the bridge. There's the black jetty, which is on the front cover, kind of in the background, um, which is a, I think, two-kilometre-long um, jetty going out into the estuary by which they were going to transport the oil from... Um, the kind of the deeper waters of the estuary into this kind of tributary, which is where where the Canby Wick is, um, and yeah, I spent a lot of time there doing the filming. I mean, all the all the, all the filming for um, the film of the world after was, was was done there, and yeah, each time you know, in winter, almost impossible to find anything like wriggling, <laughs> but um, and then in summer, just this kind of surfeit of, of um, butterflies and and, um, and generally crawly things. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you saw the part where the where the old chimney used to be. It's just these um, it's these big. I think it was like a base for a pipeline or something. The pipe's no longer there, but it's these big like concrete geometric blocks laid out. Mm. And there were these uh, 
like reeds, I suppose, growing up through them, but it looked like bamboo or something, and it was just this weird, like, it's like they're stumbling into, like, an Aztec temple or something. It's just very, like, magical. Did you see that bit? It's a very magical kind of Yeah, it's kind of off, to the, off to the right bit, yes. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I think it's interesting that going back to kind of ideas of, of nature and so on, I think the reason, I think what they did before they built the refinery, or built what they did of the refinery, they put a load of sand or substrate down basically over the marsh to give it kind of a base to build on because it wouldn't have been suitable just alluvium to build on. And it's because of that base that it's now grown up. As they, they call it Britain's rainforest, which it's not actually like walking through a rainforest. But if you walk through, you will be amazed if you, if you uh, know anything about plants, how much the diversity of plants in, within, you know, it's, I think it's based on diversity of plants per square metre or something, but the amount of different plants you'll see there in this tiny area, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's supposed it? to be one of the most biodiverse yeah. spaces in the UK. So the, the insects as well, obviously. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's things like wild rocket sweet peas growing there. I mean, I sat there when I went there. We sat down on this bank to eat our lunch. I was thinking, oh, I can smell rocket now. Where's that coming from? This whole bank was just rocket. So I was just picking it and eating it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this, you know, this wonderful diversity and abundance of life. You know, it's rewilded in a sense, but it's not gone back to this idea of a natural environment, it's very much an unnatural environment if we can even use that dichotomy, which, you know, we can't really, but mm. it just shows you how, you know, what is this amazing environment is a very much a human construction at the same time, but it's also a wild environment, it's very much these, you know, this entanglement, the kind of uh, queer ecology is uh, one term that I'm looking at, it's like very much, you know, playing with these dichotomies, isn't it? Yeah, I'd actually just like to address your work I mean, as a, an academic and a researcher and a writer engaged with kind of multi-species archaeologies. And I know that the, the kind of science-fiction precedents for this project were very much rooted in writers like Ursula Le Guin, um, Octavia Butler, and I assume your work is kind of also informed by the kinds of um, narratives and conversations that are being generated by academics like Don Haraway, one of the things that Haraway and Le Guin both emphasise in, in their own work um, is the importance of stories and the kinds of stories we tell, or for Le Guin, it's the shapes of the stories we tell. I wonder if you could just talk a little about the role of narrative, perhaps, in your own research and whether or not uh, stories have a kind of primacy in terms of how you work academically. Yeah, I think, in fact, there's even a book called uh, Narratives of Human Evolution, which was very much a kind of early, an early, um, well, in fact, I think really the first, the first work actually looked critically at the discipline of human evolution because it's very much, you know, um, a lot of the kind of scientists don't, they think they're being, basically they have this idea that, oh, we're doing objective science, and if you say it's informed by any kind of political ideolog ideological ideas, they get very grumpy about that. <laughs> well, at least they did in the 80s when this came out, and a lot of them still do today, but, um, you know, you'll find that less often, I would hope. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was the, you know, the very first kind of critical look, which obviously was part of my literature study. The first kind of critical look at the discipline of human origins was called Narratives of Human Evolution, which is looking at how, you know, far from being an objective account informed by the fossils, the fossils were more kind of, you know, just show pieces to add to this tale that actually, if you look at its structure, hadn't changed since, you know, the, the birth of the discipline in the 1860s or even 
the kind of prehistory of the discipline before that. You know, it's very much this heroic tale. In fact, I think if you've seen the beginning of Space Odyssey, that's, you know, that function really is as clear as you can get, you know, this idea of, uh, well, in fact, Space Odyssey was based on uh, um, Raymond Dart, who discovered uh, Australopithecus, and he had this very, uh, this very kind of, I think, a bit hyperbolic compared to what a lot of uh, scientists would do at the time, idea about the, the violence of humanity. Um, but that became the base of Space Odyssey. But, you know, if you turn down the violence a little, it's basically the same as what the other scientists were saying. You know, that we, you've got these kind of apes going around in this very, you know, it's a, this transcendent move from animality to humanity, the, the birth of consciousness and so on, which, as I say, Space Odyssey puts it very well. We should read any account, even the most objective ones, or, you know, objective, the most dry and technical ones, they take this basis which goes back to, you know, far beyond the 1860s, goes back to classical ideas, the same skull and the Aristotle, this, you know, the humans having reason, the animals, or the dumb animals as they call them, they lack speech and reason, speech being another, another thing, so it's very much just jump. So, uh, you know, I was kind of looking at how, obviously that's a very uh, anthropocentric and simplified idea based on binaries, you know, how can we look at our entanglement to other beings and our evolution in a way that very much moves away from that, you know. So I think, uh, I think one of the paraphrased things you said recently is uh, make kin, not children. <laughs> um, and the kin here can be all kinds of different species, you know, not just humans. And I think that's another, um, another subject that's hugely prominent in human origins and is intertwined um, with the, as I say, the idea of human-animal um, distinction is phylogeny, or kind of the phylogeny is basically the evolutionary genealogy. So, you know, who evolved from whom? And if you look at the, you know, how the Neanderthals have been perceived is the clearest example, really. Basically, when they were seen to be, they'd go from this, basically the pendulum would swing throughout the 20th century, from Neanderthals being not related to us, this, you know, side branch, that were these, you know, basically more animal-like, lacking reason and so on, to being, uh, you know, part of our ancestry and being these noble humans, which has now got, we've now gone back to, we've now gone to that idea that Neanderthals are our ancestors and they're, you know, have reason and so on, art, culture and all that, which is really only since the DNA studies came out in around 2010. Before that, it was an extremely polarised, you know, it was the polar opposite, you know, that Neanderthals are stupid, they couldn't produce art and that's why they died out and so on, which, you know, we really need to, although as I say, we've gone, we've gone away from that idea of Neanderthals now, the idea we have now is still prioritising reason art and all these things, and, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of consciousness as this uniquely human thing, the, you know, the noble human that's, you know, dominating the animal world, standing apart from nature, that's all, that's all something we need to get rid of, I would say, you know, create new stories, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, go beyond that. Yeah, I, I guess um, just another uh, kind of pendulum shift culturally is the way that we um, conceive of and understand the apocalypse, and I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit about the temporalities of the apocalypse, and there's a, a writer that I uh, constantly return to, Van Carter-Williams, whose book combined an apocalypse, uh, makes a, a 
pretty kind of pronounced statement that we need to think the apocalypse not something that we're anticipating, but as something that's already happened. We're looking at the aftermath of that. Um, he locates the apocalypse as the 2008 financial crisis um, and then the kind of subsequent conditions that were set in place as a result. Um, but I wondered if you considered this game scenario as a way of maybe accepting that kind of apocalypse in the present or internalising it in the present as a kind of play test, as a way of kind of bringing us slightly, slightly closer to an acceptance of the fact that the apocalypse is, is imminent and kind of embedded within the present as opposed to something that's, that's removed from us. I think it is very much, a, you know, this idea of the apocalypse, it comes a kind of eschatological Christianity, isn't it? It's, it's not a... Uh, it's not a... Uh, idea informed by anything uh, in the world it's just uh, an article of faith isn't it, this idea of the apocalypse so I think well, going back to what I said at the start, it's these multiple crises happening that we're embedded in that is, that is very much it isn't it, it's an ongoing thing but yeah I think uh, that's certainly something that that comes out in the uh, in the work, I think that what was it, the, the very first the thing you read at the beginning was was it humans are over or something, wasn't it? Yeah, homo sapiens were no more. That's it, homo, homo sapiens are no more, yeah. So it's this idea of accepting this world in which, you know, this this noble human that we've uh, has been valorised in the Western tradition for so long, you know, accepting the end of that, which is, well, really a good thing in that regard, but kind of the, the making thin idea of Haraway as well, I think that's very much something that's... That's part of it, I think, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, I think, I think um, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, maybe humanity as it was in the 20th century is already over, in the sense that we've all been um, very much turned into um, cyborgs through our phones. <laughs> that, that half of our memory, half of our thoughts are, are kind of in these devices and we rely on them in, in such a kind of int- intricate and integral way that we're, we've effectively changed, you know, almost changed from from this experience. I think, you know, um, experience of playing video games was sort of a precursor to that, and I think that's why maybe um, video games and, and kind of the aesthetic of video games has become almost kind of known in, in the art circles in the way when, when I started making work with video games and... 1998 <laughs> like it was it was seen as this kind of this foreign thing which you know they just it, it couldn't be understood except on a purely aesthetic level there wasn't any kind of understanding of the culture around it etc in in the art sphere and now it's sort of seen as almost like symptomatic of of um, a present condition because kind of the the self as cyborg is you know maybe quote Haraway again, it's sort of, like, it's sort of all part, um, it, it's kind of all pervasive really. Um, yeah, I think, I think really it is, uh, as well as being about the present climate crisis and also, you know, the, the present possibility of, of, of extinction, which is very real, I would say, um, it's, it's also about, yes, the... You know, the world changed fundamentally in 2008, and I think in a way that still is not really being acknowledged. And I think it's it's kind of you know we're seeing its ripples in in Trump and you know all, all, all the the extreme extremism across across political uh, situations across the world. And um, 
yeah it, it really the book was a way of trying to trying to again get people to have conversations across um kind of stridently different positions you know these societies have been isolated for 8000 years now you have to talk to each other <laughs> it's sort of you know this is a, is a kind of fundamental fissure but yet you have to you know through the gameplay mechanics you have to kind of solve problems together you have to kind of survive together it's you know you're forced to have a commonality and and what comes out of that and how yeah how do we find ourselves again now is sort of where it came from yeah, I think, as you said about using gameplay mechanics, I think they are, a, you know, the role-playing game is a really incredible tool for kind of exploring the world, which you don't really get with more, you know, traditional experiences, I suppose you'd say, though obviously you've had role-playing games for quite a long time now. <laughs> That's one of the things I, when I started trying to write kind of historical campaigns in role-playing games, it would just, just makes you think about so many things that you don't have to consider you know, if you're writing an essay, a story, whatever else about the past, you go along your own tracks pretty much, aren't you? You can you research what you have to. If you've yeah, you kind of have that blinker on. Yeah. You can have that blinker on where, where it's like, if it doesn't concern me, then I'm not worried about it. But yeah. in, in the game space, suddenly it's like, kind of, but what's the toilet system? Yeah, exactly. When you've got people <laughs> trying to explore and pick apart your world and all yeah. these things, you know, the creativity there, it just, yeah. just have to... There's just so much you have to think about that you don't before. And, you know, obviously I'm talking about it from the perspective of someone creating the game, but obviously as a player, you're also thinking about a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't have to from watching a movie, you know, reading a book or whatever, or even playing a video game where, you know, it's very much defined what you can interact with. As we were saying about the Assassin's Creed games earlier, there's so much creativity, and that is, I think, you know, a great way of exploring the past and a great way of exploring the future, which are both intimately connected connected you know but i think it's also an integrally open system you know it's like dnd you you can feel that you can actually you know the homebrew campaign which is where you create your own world and kind of work with the mechanics you know it, it's it, it's as a system it's completely open to you creating your own underground haven your own society a whole different kind of way of being a whole kind of world around it or which you can kind of latch into this this space so it's sort of it's almost an invitation the book to kind of you know where where do you want to take this where can this go that's an interesting um you know talk about the history of fandom and so on the, the kind of role of the the dm in the games you know the very the early Dungeons dragons books it was basically like this you know totalitarian dictator thing in the way it was described and the way they were supposed to play things out but you know, they were basically there to try and kill the players effectively and were this ultimate arbiter of the rules and so on. And now it has gone towards, as you said, more collaborative idea that, you know, we're all here to tell a story, to have fun. And, and you actually rename the figure of the Dungeon Master as the mentor, which is much more kind of pastoral yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the kind of figure you want to go with if you don't want this, you know, judge, jury and execution figure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so it's trying to trying to guide you know a, a disparate group through a difficult situation you know so so mentor felt 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 right. Yeah. I, I think we've spoken for hours. So if you want to ask questions, if anyone has any, um, maybe shout out. And if, if we can't hear, we can pass the mic around. Yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes. 
Oh, uh, you mean... Are, are you the artist as well as the writers? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, this is complicated. Concept <laughs> artist. <laughs> um, and I guess I... Like, this is by Wumi Osobleichen, this piece here, who is another um, uh, illustrator who I, who I asked to, to, to make work for the book. This, this one is by Kat Rogers, who's one of the people who um, came to the sessions and was involved in, in the work. So it was kind of a, it was a collaborative work of where um, lots of different people contributed the art and um, lots of people contributed to the writing. I, I, I guess I came with a sort of framework. We had already the idea of havens. We had already kind of a, a very s slight sketch of each of the, what the havens would be. A sort of idea of what the rules would be, and um, and then it was it was just kind of collaborative effort to to flesh it out into something else. So um, I, in kind of fine art terms, I was kind of the artist that instigated the thing, but the actual the hand of the artist, you know, is I think there's one of my drawings in here. <laughs> Just, just to follow up on that, something that I found quite interesting generally about whether it's just conceived as an artwork or a game, I don't usually make those kind of taxonomical definitions, but the thing that I, I was really moved by in terms of my encounter with the exhibition was just the general space that you created, which felt much more so like a, a resource or a kind of hobby centre than a straight-up kind of top-down presentation space that, that we would usually encounter for exhibitions. So, um, yeah. Any more questions? Yes. Um. But yeah, orange. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 oh, okay. I thought it was really interesting the way you're centering metamorphosis and the kind of operative within the game system itself. But of course, like tabletop games and even the book um, has a certain materiality that's just finite in its creation. Right? Mm. So I was wondering how you work the two together and whether you see it as a, a Perhaps after you release this edition, there's going to be more feedback that will generate like a second book. Like, how do you see this? It's, it's already underway. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's you know, this is this is kind of yeah, the first first shot to the moon, you know, and then <laughs> kind of trying to trying to build on it. In a way, the this you know, it sets out the framework. It sets out kind of just really mundane stuff like dice systems and sort of certain rule sets. But then once you have that, it's, it, you know, it only takes like a few pages of text and you suddenly have another society or you have a whole bunch of new denizens of the, the intersection that you can encounter. You have, I, you know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll write another adventure. There's a, sh a short kind of, I'd say about three, four hour adventure in, in, in the end of this as a kind of introduction to the world. Um, and yeah, through... Yeah, through all of that, it sort of is. It's it, it's like a I don't know. Yeah, it's like a a sandpit. It's like kind of <laughs> it's like a sandpit game to take a video game anal analogy. That that there's sort of it's a whole set of things that you can then then build on with your own kind of set of ideas. I mean, it could be easily be repurposed for any location. It, it has some connection to Cambywick, I'm, I'm pleased to say, but, <laughs> but it, it, it's really, it's just, it's a set of ideas and this could be, you know, reconstituted in a different location with different people with different concerns about, about society and, you know, these could all be 
be configured into something that could be worked out through the game structure. Well, we're talking about doing a, expanding a, the bestiary, weren't we? Because that was, yeah. you know, all these weird and wonderful beings recreated and they only got a few pages in the end. We know yeah, no, so I'm, much more than I'm, I'm be, already on that. We know that, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you Um, yeah, I guess it's not talked about overtly, I'd say, but it's not, um, I mean, each of these societies have, have different attitudes to, um, difference, I suppose, um, and different sorts of abilities. I mean, you know, I think the Sophia would deal with disability in a very different way to, say, uh, the Uruk. Well, there aren't any characters per se in the book. We have societies. So, um, and the societies have particular um, you know, societal structures. Um, I'm trying to think of... But, yeah, and, and it's up to the player to make their own character. So that character could, you know, say, have impaired vision or could have impaired mobility. And that would be something that would be, you know, it's perfectly feasible within the game structure um, and yeah may, maybe it's something I should make more evident in the next edition and I suppose that also ties in with the idea of essence you know mm-hmm. um, difference being a positive not necessarily a negative yeah I mean there's there's also uh, in, there's, there's a constant canard in, um, in role playing games about language because <laughs> um, in say Dungeons and Dragons someone will speak um, I don't know, draconic or and and um, deep speech and stuff, and and then their own and then common, which is supposed to be common to everyone. But um, in in the world after, there's um, the essential affinity, which allows everyone to be understood by everyone because of essence. So it's sort of yeah, there's there's um, I guess yeah, it's a, it's a space for understanding one another and understanding one's difference and. Kind of yeah, and reassessing what you know what is what is essential about you in some way. Yes. Um, when the conversation kind of led down the route of you know our games political, and I agree with what you were saying that all games kind of are on arm. Mm. Um, but do you think that the reason this game, because it is it is a fundamental game, is found? in a gallery space. Do you think it's because of your kind of obviously presence as a fine artist or do you think it is because it's seen as political? <laughs> you don't have to ask the commissioners that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, um, you know, a gallery space is a space that's open to me to explore my ideas because I, I have a, a track record of making art that is shown in, in exhibition spaces. Um, you know, in many ways I'll be just as happy to present this particular game at sort of um, MCM Expo or something and, and kind of have it as, um, yeah, just as a stand and then, you know, maybe with a couple of co- cutouts and Merlin could be there with me. <laughs> we, could, we could introduce the game to people and that, that would make just as much sense. But, I mean, it, the gallery space makes... 
a lot of sense for the video installation, I would say, and for opening up the book to people who wouldn't ever consider looking at a role-playing game book. So, say, you know, the, the timeline from, from, from the book, which is sort of, it was something that we, we concocted to kind of try and flesh out the history of the space. It's kind of exposed into one of the rooms and it becomes like almost the book on, on the wall and you can kind of understand it in a much kind of, in a more fragmented, abstracted way and they can get an in, introduction to this space in a way which... I don't think would be, you know, it's hard to think of other spaces where, where that kind of exploration of it would be possible. So, um, yeah, I would say it, it makes sense for this exhibition to be there, but um, why it's there is because that's, yeah, it kind of, it makes sense for this particular situation. But um, the aim is always to make a role-playing game. <laughs> I didn't necessarily know we were going to be able to make a book, though, actually. That kind of came about through it being a successful experiment and kind of growing to a, such an extent that it could actually, you know, be consolidated into, into kind of, you know, something about 120 pages. But yeah, I think just, you know, on the subject of games being political, you know, I should have said, all, you know, all games are political and it's the people that insist that their games... Or the games they like are not political. Mm. <laughs> They're usually the ones wedded to the most unpleasant politics. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's also, I, I think it's, it's incredibly important to be aware of the way that um, game cultures um, intersect with emergent extremist cultures. We've had for a long time now what's, what's commonly referred to as the military entertainment complex, where you would have game companies um, producing content the American military as a recruitment tool. Uh, now we're at a moment where the streaming service that David mentioned earlier, Twitch, is being used to stream extremist um, attacks on mosques um, and, and other such horrible occurrences. So I think there's um, a, a, a really kind of novel and unprecedented moment at present where um, radical politics from the far right are kind of intersecting with um, the kind of infrastructure of gameplay and its sort of channels of mediation. So. I think, you know, going back to the, the game again issue, I think it was, um, came out a while ago that a lot of the kind of primary figures in Gamergate had, because, uh, you know, Gamergate came off 4chan, which is, um, you know, has always been a very reactionary state anyway. But I think it was, um, Showing that a lot of the primary figures of Gamergate that were kind of most, you know, the, the motivating figures had actually gone to 4chan from Stormfront, which is a, uh, you know, an infamous neo Nazi um, message board. So they'd gone to 4chan from Stormfront to intentionally use this idea of women in video games and all that nonsense to radicalise people into fascism, basically. And that's what you see today, the YouTube. The YouTube algorithm is one um, thing as well. You know, people start out, you know, generally they kind of watch some kind of anti-feminist video and then it goes to, like, race and IQ and then, you know, it just Holocaust and all. It's just this pipeline that takes people from, you know, these reactionary ideas which are less extreme to outright Nazis, you know. <laughs> so, and that is very much entwined. A lot of these videos that they're getting into this politics from are you know, video games and things like that, comic books, you know, it is, you know, the, the, the fascist element is very strong, certainly. Yeah.
I think we've got time for one more question if we want to have some. Uh, yeah, sorry, do you want to deal with uh, theology in different ways. I mean, you were very deep with your yeah, Darwin think, uh, theology. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, I mentioned a bit earlier, I think, uh, I say that's uh, something I went very much into with the Darwin, the, cosmo the cosmology, the idea of, you know, the divine light, the, you know, I was thinking about, you know, more so the kind of cosmology and the origin story, that how, how would that differ for an underground civilization compared to, you know, obviously we underground civilizations have not really existed in reality but how would that affect you know their beliefs so basically I thought their idea is that actually all of the you know rather than a sky the sky is just a giant hollow inside the earth which is this infinite expanse of underground you know and that that was created by um, you know Lux which is the god the god goddess of light rather than created this, you know, like this kind of big bang idea, created this big cavern underground and then when that light filtered filtered through to the um, to the exposed earth that then created first the kind of priestly class, then the, the mushrooms ate, and then going to the lower classes and the animals, this hierarchical idea created by the divine light. And obviously the, the priestly class and the ruling class. I think I think I went into the the Uruk as well, the cosmology. Um, yeah, I mean, it's essentially each have a slightly different relationship to kind of ideas around theology, but um, as with all role-playing games, it's so open to your own development or, you know, you can play D&D &D with pretending that deities don't exist or kind of saying that they don't as a dungeon master, um, but you could, or it makes kind of classes like clerics and paladins quite tricky, but it is possible. Um, but... Um, yeah, essentially, you know, it's there to be to be played with and kind of understood through, you know, your your playing as a player in, in, in the world. After you're creating your own subjectivity, so you know, make up your own theology. <laughs> it will make sense. Yeah, I think that's something to say. As you said about the idea, I think that's. The idea of religion is something that a lot of role-playing games are done in a kind of very crude, mechanical way, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you worship this god, you'll get plus one to some stat, and then, you know, they don't really think about it. In a, as I said, there's no kind of anthropological, it's not an anthropologically formed system. But also, I think the idea of like religious conflict as well seems to be um, something that's handled very, not necessarily in a very uh, informed manner in these RPGs as well, like. You know, there's inherently like religions inherently clash in a violent way, kind of thing. I think that's something that comes out in a lot of them, yeah, which is obviously very politically naive. We have one more question up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was um, thinking about your. 
a relation to the future and how that might differ from a you that was born maybe 60 years ago or something. Um, there's this really great film by an artist, a Dutch artist called Marilyn Dijkman, who, um, who sort of forensically researched the way that the future was um, positioned in over the last 60 years. So, you know, films from the 60s and 70s had this kind of um, very kind of positive view of the future. It was experimental, um, but more importantly, it was really far off. It was sort of so far off you could hardly understand it. And she had this great timeline that reminded me of the one that you have in the gallery mm. here, and um, where it becomes really obvious that the future's coming nearer, and it's far more disturbing and real from, say, the sort of early 80s onwards. And I'm wondering if that's reflected in Dungeons and Dragons kind of um, play or your idea of um, the future. Is there a kind of uh, a dystopic nearness that's vaguely terrifying, like what I'm 60 years ago? Um, God, that's hard to say. <laughs> and we're all, yeah, we're all products of the things that we consume, won't we? So I guess. Um, I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of the 70s. Actually, <laughs> I was born in 76. And for me, um, I always thought, yeah, in, in my teenage years, I thought, I thought you know, nuclear <coughs> armageddon was a certain, certainty. And, and then we kind of, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, that suddenly didn't seem such, such a, a, a prominent thing. But, yeah, it, it, it steadily became clear that, that that wasn't the end of... The end, of the, the end of the end of the world. <laughs> so, um, and I think, you know, all the events of 2016, which still rumble on, which are mostly to do with 2008, are, you know, promoting an idea of a kind of, yeah, a, a sort of an infinitely dystopian sort of, sort of future, I guess. But um, I think, you know, with its imminence, it opens up, in a way, a fresh impetus to actually enact kind of change in both the world, in the self, and yeah, in society. So, and 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 really, I'm I'm hoping that this helps to do that. I was just going to answer that actually. It's been a few years since um, the philosopher Funko did overall and published a book on the, the end of the future, right? There's, there's like a, the future is an exhausted entity. But that was a particularly European conception of the future that came through um, avant garde movements like futurism, um, Western science fiction. Um, I think at the moment we're experiencing a plurality of different anticipations of what the future could be from Sino-Futurism through Gulf-Futurism, Afro-Futurism. Um, and even those movements now are kind of moving on into other kind of um, splintered entities and progressing in different ways that um, provide lots of alternatives and opportunities for thought. So. But yeah, I think that you know, the post-apocalyptic genre has been around as long as capitalism has. You know, if you go back to the... You know, you've got like... Uh, I think a good... Um, Something people still reference nowadays is, I think, um, Richard Jeffries, I think it was called her After London, which is this um, wonderful account of kind of London being reclaimed by nature after, I think, I'm not sure if they mentioned, if he mentioned why people, it was a plague or something, I don't know, but this idea of London being reclaimed by nature, turning, you know, this account of rewilding, which I think is still very relevant today, but then you've got, 
You know, there's this idea that uh, they, they seem to think in the Victorian era that New Zealand was going to be the, the next kind of Western uh, civilization, which is kind of for reasons seem pretty obscure now. But there are lots of, there's a tradition of kind of a New Zealander from 2000 staring at like the ruins of London that became a. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that that's been revived now with, yeah. with, with people like Peter Thiel thinking that New Zealand is the place to go when there's kind of societal collapse. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's New Zealand that's first a, and then Mars. That's a good it? point, yeah. <laughs> but also, like, you know, that's the kind of the ruination side where you've got, you know, William Morris and these people were asking these kind of utopian socialist ideas of a kind of more nature-inspired um, world, which, well, in his case, still had very uh, reactionary gender politics and so on. So, you know, I think the post-apocalyptic or kind of post-civilisation or whatever you want to call it has always been, let's say, it's been part of fiction as long as capitalism has. Um, so obviously it's more relevant now, but it's never... It's not something that's emerged recently, you know. <laughs> yeah, so um, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to South Africa's colleagues.